Hello and welcome back to Happy Potch Radio Season 7. Today, Barry and I had the pleasure of speaking with Christian van Maren and Anna Rademacher. Christian is the founder and CEO of the Excess Materials Exchange, a revolutionary platform that uses AI, machine learning and blockchain technology to connect buyers and sellers of secondary materials. And Anna is an independent advisor and consultant supporting the transition towards the global circular economy. Anna's been working with Christian at Excess Materials Exchange, continues to work with them. And actually, Barry, you'll remember back in season five, we spoke to Micah from the Excess Materials Exchange. Today's conversation was a bit different. We framed it a bit differently to fit in with this season's topic of zooming out and seeing the transition from a sort of higher perspective as we talk to consultants and other sort of advisors in this space. Yeah, it was a good one. It was another great conversation. Yeah, it really was. I think there's a couple of themes that are really, really sticking with me from a lot of Mm. these conversations. And in this one, I think it came across really strongly again. And one is the drive and passion for the people doing this work, not just Mm. from a, hey, this is a fun project and an amazing thing I'm doing, but from a very personal place. And Christian in particular shared how he has some quite cool and unusual inspiration we'll let the listeners find out about how he pushes through you know how he keeps going in the difficult times and i think that theme is really i keep using the word inspiring but i think it genuinely is inspiring for this season Mm. and then in addition to that i loved the detail that we got into from sharing a little bit of detail from both of their work from the excess material exchange and some of the other projects about how the difficult complex messy problems that we're trying to change with a circular transition and how they're actually making that concrete and enabling things to happen. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of inspiring bits, I think, coming out of this season. And yeah, for me, one of the things that I'm I'm hearing a lot is this idea of like collaboration and the need for that. You know, I feel like we've been talking about this for three seasons and it just never gets less impactful, but there's just no such thing as individual actors in this transition. Everyone's individual actions are impactful, but there's not really a transition, there's not really a full change until it's happening collectively and we're collaborating and the system is actually transforming. I think that that's something that keeps coming back around for me as well. Definitely. One of the other themes that we're pulling out from this season, I think, is how important it is to take the skills that we have as individuals and the strength of our businesses and actually get involved in this change. And that doesn't have to be either avoiding the complexity or stuck in analysis paralysis. And I think there's a really exciting opportunity. And as I often say, because I firmly believe it, a responsibility for those of us who work in the, particularly in the tech sector, who have this power and privilege to actually get involved in this stuff and the excess materials change is a brilliant example of that because it's using technology but as they talk about in this conversation how that is a small part of the broader change so it needs to enable process change and work with people and working with multiple departments and as you mentioned the collaboration and pulling all those things together with the technology enabling that rather than the old 
you know, solution looking for a problem type, let's get stuck in cool tech because it's cool, and rather thinking about the impact and the place and the context for all of these things is so important. Definitely. Cool. And so, without any further ado, let's meet Christine and Anna. My name is Christian Vermaren, and I'm one of the founders and the CEO of the Excess Materials Exchange, which I think, in short, is perhaps best described as a dating site for secondary materials and waste. My name is Anne Rademaker. I'm currently based in the Netherlands and I am uh, practicing the circular economy principles basically across the world to further accelerate the transition in all kinds of sectors and environments. And I'm doing that with a lot of uh, passion each day. Awesome. Thank you so much. And welcome both of you to Happy Porch Radio. Thank you. Thank you. So both doing multiple different things and there's lots going on and the connection between you and this conversation is the Excess Materials Exchange. But to sort of preface all of that and talk a little bit and to sort of set the scene for the conversation, I'd love to hear from you both a little bit about what led you to this point in this passion that you described, Anna, and this work that you're doing right now. Yeah, it started really almost more than 10 years ago from my end, where I was first introduced to the topic of circular economy during a business case, where we had to think about traveling, working, living in a circular world. And back in the days, everyone was like having this big question mark, what is a circular world? And and what's the difference then from our world today? And I was triggered by that because the whole topic and the content of circular economy is is really nothing new. It exists for a long time, just under different, let's say, naming. But why is it so important now that triggered me? And, And also because of the word economy in there, which I think is one of the main reasons why it's also like getting a lot of attention today because in the end i think we all figured out that if we ask the question do you want to leave a better world for your children or grandchildren it's just not working it's a matter of matching that possible environmental impact towards what do you gain from it from a financial perspective and and suddenly that's interesting for companies for well for individuals so that triggered me from the very beginning uh, connecting making the world a better place towards how can we also satisfy the needs of everyone interested in other aspects of it. So for me, I started my journey within EY as a more like global consultancy to really understand ways of working of multinational companies and especially also the language of sea level. Like how do they talk? How do they make decisions? And why is this not getting the attention it should get. And a couple of years ago, it really started to become much more practical. Like, what does it mean? How can you act? And especially also how you can gain from it from multiple angles. And that's also the time where I I personally took the leap and, and started to assist companies, but also other initiatives really to make this part of their daily practice. And the fun part is, is that it has really been taking off. Also today, you see students are mastering in this. I'm lucky enough to lecture on various universities as well on this topic and also recently published a book about it, really going back to the basics again. Because what you see now, the front runners are out there. They are really trying to find proper cases and, well, of course, be acknowledged in their leadership position. But what you see is that 
most of the companies and also referring to most of individual people around you and me still have no proper sense of what it is and how they can contribute to it. So we are really in this tipping point, I feel, towards like, okay, how can we now bring everyone up to speed and really make a change happen? And that motivates me. So my journey towards this point was a bit more meandering, I think. I started my career at Shell, which maybe may sounds a bit odd seeing what I do today, but I did start to work for Shell because I wanted to see if I could change the company from the inside out, which was maybe back then a bit of a naive young professional ambition. But I have to say, looking back, I wasn't that unsuccessful. And one of the things that I managed to do was to convince my first manager to send me on an expedition to Antarctica with Sir Robert Swan, who back then had the ambition to take young future leaders to Antarctica, to make them fall in love with the continent and make them sort of sustainable champions in the hope that they would go back to the normal world and use their skills for good, which I guess worked quite well on me. And that's something that sort of turned what I would call back then sort of like a dormant wake flame in the back of my mind to do something good in what I actually said back then in an interview on Antarctica, turned into a blazing inferno, which is maybe kind of embarrassing, but there we go. Made me change my career. So I was back then just a, a project manager for capital projects, but then I, I, I devoted my time for on sustainability. First within Shell, I managed the natural capital and green infrastructure program for North and South America based out of Houston, which is a lot of fun because I was managing projects in which we built oyster reefs, mangrove forest and wetlands and whatnot. And also looking at alternative ways to sequester carbon, mostly through natural ways. And it was also through that work that I got a chance to, to work with a lot of NGOs and also got acquainted with the topic of the, of the circular economy and realized that it was perhaps one of the fastest, if not cheapest ways to reach the Paris Climate Agreement targets. So back then, this was in 2016, when the oil price took a bit of a nosedive and Shell took a look at the program that we were working on a bit more closely and decided to cut back on it. I thought it was a nice moment to leave the organization and start doing something for myself and be a bit more closely involved with, with sustainability, moved back to Europe and started the Excess Materials Exchange. And that was a bit of an interesting step. I would say it was a, a character building experience. Uh, it's been a, a roller coaster ride. And to be honest, it, it still is. And it is also like Anne is saying, circular economy in a lot of ways, it's, it's a systemic change. Everything has to change for the circular economy to really to work, but it's also a, a new vernacular. It's a way of, of turning sustainability, which I think has always been a topic that's always been pigeonholed to sustainability practitioners into something that is also all of a sudden practical and useful for financial people, because of course the term economy in it, but also to operational people and to, in fact, all other practitioners out there. And I think that's also the, the fun part about it. And if I you know, were to tell on events or on, on birthdays to lay people about what I'm doing, it sounds very intuitive. And you know, people would say, well, why aren't we doing this? Why are we wasting all these precious materials? But in fact, we are. And someone once said that the circle economy seems to be stuck in the future because everybody wants it. Companies want it. Governments want it. There's all sorts of policy out there pushing for it, incentivizing it and whatnot. But still, at the same time, it seems to be quite difficult and complicated to transition from where we are today in the linear economy towards that circular economy. We're seeing it also in the numbers, of course, because the 
circular economy from the Netherlands, they do this assessment every year. And actually, we're seeing that we're going back, we're becoming less circular. That's the interesting bit of it, to, to see how we can get this unstuck. What are the necessary tools that we need to make this happen? Who are the right stakeholders that we need to engage? At what time? What do we need to tell them? You know, what do they need for, for this to become a reality? And I think that's really exciting. Of course, it's also at times very frustrating, but I think that's, that's what keeps me going. And what is great about this, and I think in general, what is really great about this whole movement that is happening today is that it's not only a, a systems change, but it also brings together great people from all over the world. I mean, through our work, also met Anne, of course, and now we're working together, but we have expanded recently to Australia. We're now working on also expanding to the Middle East. I'm now in London looking at expanding our work. So it's also a wonderful way to do something good. And I had a conversation a couple of days ago with a gentleman here in London. And the chance that we have today to work on something like the circle economy or perhaps even other sustainability related topics will define perhaps what the world will look like in the next couple of centuries or perhaps maybe even longer. And I think... People in the future will look back at this time, maybe with some jealousy to say, I wish I, I was there to be able to do what they did, you know, and here we are doing it. And I'm actually quite happy. And, and even when I say this, get quite excited about it. Outstanding. Thank you. That's brilliant. It really brings the conversation to life when we hear the story and the passion that both of you are bringing to this work. One phrase there is stuck with me, Christian, the, the circular economy is stuck in the future. and you also then finished off talking about the opportunity to be at that cusp and the change and this transition to be part of that and to be helping to make that happen. But I'd like to maybe just to dwell on the stuck part a little bit. <laughs> and you finished on a sort of hopeful and, as you said, exciting note. And and I can hear as well the passion and the excitement that you have for the work as well. So I guess challenging question for me is do you find it difficult to keep going when you do see things like some stats some circularity gap report or when it feels like we are pushing the boulder up the hill how do you keep going yeah i mean it's a very good question and i think a lot of people wonder this when they look at the work that i've been doing and, and the amount of hours that that i put in and i'm sure for Anne, it's very much the same and i actually and this may sound really weird but I take a lot of inspiration from some of the old painters like Van Gogh and, and, and even Rembrandt, because they, of course, as we now know, saw the world in a very specific way, which was very different from how other people back then saw the world. But they still persisted. And maybe they were not necessarily as well regarded when they were still alive, especially in, in the case of Van Gogh. But now that we look back, we call them visionaries and we call them brilliant and, and, and we call them the best painters in history. And not to say that I call myself the best in anything in this world, but I do take a lot of inspiration from maybe the, the tenacity and sort of the belief that they had in, in their vision of the world. And that really is something that keeps me going uh, or that we all have, have a great vision that is worth sacrificing our time and our efforts two or four, I think the future will only tell us. But that's something that really keeps me going because I really feel like that this is the way to go. And I also feel like with the excess materials exchange and the tools that we have developed, those are the tools that we need. That gives me this doggedness and this drive to keep pushing. And and to be honest, that, that's one part of it. And the other part also is, is, is the fantastic people that I get to work with, not just Anne and, and the other people in, in our team that we work with, 
that are very, very much focused and very much part of the team and, and are willing to make maybe not the same sacrifices that we're making, but definitely not insignificant. And also the people that we work with in the organizations that work with us as well, because they are the entrepreneurs, the champions that we need inside large organizations, being both public and private organizations to make these this happen. The agents of, of change sort of that built this coalition of the willing to make that happen. Part of it is sort of this intrinsic motivation and part of it is also that helped me keep going. Adding to that, Christian, because I agree with you uh, and I like the comparison with the famous changer, but making it very small and very bit size is, I think, one of the reasons for me to to keep on going. Because I think now we all kind of like understand what is it and where are we transitioning to? And it's a systemic change. So we know everyone is involved, but at the same time, making that very bit size and understandable of what you should do and how this involvement should look like, that's actually where it gets also really excited, right? Because actually that's also where we see now in practice, also last years, that people don't like to change personally, right? If, if someone asks you personally, like change your consumption habits or buy another product that is modular and that is easier to repair or whatsoever, it's like, no, the company should change or legislation should change, right? So it's always like pinpointing towards each other while looking simply at the theory of systemic change is that everyone brings value to the table. And that adds to also Christian telling we are already working with such amazing people, motivated people, experts in the field, really from all kinds of specialities, right? It's, it's really not that you should have a certain background in that sense, but really everyone. And for me, the main driver and motivation is, okay, how to make that small, how to make it understandable and what to do. And then the next step also do it and see that all those very small, small activities make the contribution to the bigger change. So zooming in, zooming out, even though sometimes you get very pessimistic about all the things that are happening and does it add value if I do something small? I believe it does and it motivates to keep on going. Thank you both for sharing your perspectives on that. You've touched upon the idea of public perception. You know, you both talked about language and Chris, you mentioned talking to people in sort of a social context and everyone's like, circular economy sounds like a great idea. Is that not what we already do? And, you know, it's an easy sell in a lot of ways. But also on the other side of that, as you mentioned, Anna, there's a resistance when it comes to actually making change. So I'm just wondering, like in your experience, how much resistance you've come across as you do your work and how you deal with that. And if you find that circular economy is an easy sell ultimately, or if there's still sort of collective resistance towards this movement and towards this transition. I think there's some layers to it, right? Because I think the great thing about the circular economy, as we mentioned, is that everybody understands it. But I think also the downside of the circular economy is that it's very easy to take your own interpretation from it or give your own definition to it, which then also can cause some confusion. But I think sort of that those layers come back in the sense that most people want to work on this, but then they often run into the walls of maybe their own organizations that are very much geared towards the, the linear economy. And this sometimes comes back to very simple things, right? Where 
you have an organization that has a lot of materials that they have left either in storage or maybe they're taking it out of some existing project that they have, but they don't have the mandate to sell it. So that then they have to rely on maybe contracts to do that for them. But then to motivate those contractors to do that is quite difficult because they're stuck in framework agreements and those framework agreements have been agreed on maybe years ago and they don't meet circular economy requirements at all. And then we've also come across companies where where they were allowed to sell the materials, but then actually the salespeople were not that motivated because the materials obviously were worth a little bit less than the other stuff they would normally be uh, selling. So they felt you know, less incentivized to, to necessarily collaborate. So, you know, maybe also to your, to your point, Barry, is that in some ways you see that there's often very motivated individuals within organizations, you know, these champions for, for change. But at the same time, the circle economy does require different departments in an organization to work together, you know, operations, waste procurement, and, and I think also, uh, like I said, sales. And these are not necessarily departments that, that have always in the past worked together that closely. So it always causes some, some friction. And especially if we have to deal with long-term contracts, and especially waste contracts are oftentimes very long-term contracts, it may take some time before we can really make some big, big strides within these organizations. To add to that, because I think you're giving some great examples of what if materials are already there and the kind of challenges that you receive from internally in an organization and also the partners that you're working with, with dealing with those organizations. But similar challenges exist when you talk about how can we prevent those materials being there in the first place, right? Because then you come across also different politics inside a company, thinking about an R&D team that probably needs to develop the product a little bit different, making it repairable, extending the lifetime. But that's probably pretty much different from the focus that they might have today. Not only forgetting, of course, about the KPIs that these individuals inside an organization have. When do they get a bonus or, you know, like a promotion is often based on, well, we sometimes call it like linear KPIs, right? Because it's often on more and on growth and on without taking into consideration the impact on the environment. So I think there is also like an opportunity, right? Because in the end, what we see now looking at simple, smaller thing like procuring. Most of the companies there are procuring stuff. So you would say, how easy is it to make circular economy related requirements for procurement? Making sure that there is a certain recycled percentage of recycled content in the material or buying from suppliers that meet other requirements in that sense. And it's how easy that seems to talk about it, how difficult it is to actually make that happen. Also referring to the master agreements that Christian just highlighted as well, that are in place before and after throughout the entire value chain of organizations. And there is, of course, a challenge. And at the same time, also referring to the importance of global collaboration here, because those value chains cross borders. And it's really a matter of, of, of changing also across borders even though a lot of countries have now implemented a national plan to transition to circular economy, really the need to at least open up and towards also outside of your country is one of the things 
to do. And I think to sum up, like, it's also interesting how legislation is now changing into that direction, because we see also with, for instance, uh, reporting on non-financial information, uh, which I believe is maybe not the right wording, because in the end, we call non-financial information, but actually it has an impact on your financials anyways, when you're talking about these. But it already gives some transparency on what's happening, on the kind of potentially waste or energy consumption of these companies and how are they dealing with materials, not only inside their own organization, but even in their entire value chain. So Everyone is asking each other's question. No one is really able to answer it today. But I feel that legislation can give that push, actually, to actually start doing that. And similar to reporting, you also see other alternatives like the the right to repair, but also like the digital product passports. Every product needs some transparency or at least some information. Where is it coming from? And all those kind of things that really help to push everyone, if not motivated intrinsically, then at least to do it. And I think maybe also to quickly add to that, because we talk a lot about barriers, and I think the Dutch are usually very pragmatic. I think we try to be as well. So we, you know, it's always good to think about what is possible and, and what is working. And what we do see is that when there is, for example, support from the government in the form of subsidies or grants, or even also sometimes working together with branch organizations is that that you do get that opportunity to work together with different players in the value chain. Anne and I are working together on an Horizon 2020 project with a number of airports in Europe, all the Tulips Green Airports project, in which we are setting the benchmark for what circular airports should or perhaps could look like in the future looking both at uh, material streams coming out of the construction or the built environment of the airport, but also the operational waste streams. I think Anne can share a lot more about that. And we're also actually working together with a consortium of, of label organizations in Europe that also expressed the desire to make their whole value chain a bit more circular. And when you work on those levels, then all of a sudden, a lot of these barriers that we talked about before, they're still there, but they are... You can see that there's a bit more appetite to solve it because it's sort of like you create this environment of pre-competition, even though, of course, there always is this bit of competition there, but it opens up a little bit. And I think that's really, I would say, a very important ingredient in really advancing the circle economy agenda. Yeah, thank you for bringing in the the sort of whole supply chain element Mm because I think the individual actions... I mean, you mentioned, Anna, that everyone has a part to play. And I think that individual actions only, as we know from talking about this so long, Barry and I, but (laughs) that only gets you so far in that this is really a systems change and that everyone does have a part to play. And as you say, Christian, that the collaboration is so important that systems don't change by an individual taking on some kind of change or, or some kind of leadership role. It's also really interesting to hear your perspective of how legislation plays a part in that, you know, as a sort of like motivator towards collaboration. I think that's really interesting as well. Yeah, and it really brings also more people into an organization into this transition, this legislative part, even though it maybe should not be like that. But we're talking about potentially financial benefits. We're talking about environmental benefits that are clearly there, but also those 
parts are not often enough for companies or people to really take action. Kind of like comparing that with with driving in a car. Some people, they just like to drive just really, really, really fast. And they might not even stop if they get a fine for it, right? So linking that to legislation, I mean, of course, if there is legislative frameworks in place, it might stop a lot of organizations or individuals to act in a certain way, but it still might not stop all, right? So it still comes back to constantly finding the right incentives then and motivation for change. And these are all building blocks, I feel, that are definitely part of the system change, but we're really not here dead. And we're, tr- and we're also failing, you know, we're trying out things that are clearly not happening or not really helping. And then there are sometimes things that are suddenly working, like the collaborations that Christian is referring to, suddenly even competing companies are willing to to pair up in a project to just test out like circular building principles or making resource passports. How cool is that? You know, that they are willing to share data and that they are actually teaming up to try out things because everyone knows trying out things is is nice, but it also costs money. And trying out if there is a potential benefit is also very interesting to do in a group setting so that you can also share the potential costs of failing and also benefit all from the potential succeeding of that. And uh, you see more and more of these initiatives arise, which definitely is a way forward. And even though there is always a little bit of competing between the partners, I also see that within regional collaboration. So I've launched a tool to actually assess the circularity of regions and co-created that with other partners as well, different provinces. The provinces of, of Friesland was really initiating it, and Proact Blue took really the leading role in this as well. But what you see, and that's so so interesting and intriguing about it, is that the tool is meant and specifically built for knowledge exchange, so that regions do not compete, but they team up really because these are topics that are relevant for all regions across the world. So regions can fill out a questionnaire, yes, no questions, really easy. They get their own circular score and they can benchmark it with other regions. So they can also learn from other regions and there's knowledge exchange taking place. And even though it's built for not competition play field, you still see that it's happening because somehow organizations, regions or individuals, they just want to, in general, show that they're a bit better than the other, even though in this aspect. And as long as you accept that and maybe be able to play with that even, I think you are just fine in this uh, transition path. At least more initiatives and people are joining. That's really cool and really exciting. And there's several sort of clear examples of what we're talking about there. The other thing that I really like about what you're saying and that that we're really exploring in this season of the podcast is sort of embracing the complexity of it all, right? As you're saying, like circularity and a circular transition is not easy. We've talked about the challenges of it. And then as you described, it feels like, well, things fail and they fail and then suddenly something will work and you've got traction and this activity happening and, and results happening. And embracing all of that. Also, I liked what you said, Anne, about looking at it at step by step, but within the context of the system change. I really think that's cool. So what would be um, kind of fun, I think, for a few minutes, if, if you're able to share more specifics about how the Excess Materials Exchange solves some of those problems you talked about. Yes, I think the sort of the aim of the platform is really to seduce companies and individuals to start behaving in what we would call 
the right way, right? Is by adopting circular economy principles. And it's based on a set of tools, really, which is at its core, the resources passport is to give these excess materials, be it secondary materials or waste or whatnot, an identity. And by giving it that identity, making it also a lot easier for these material streams to find a new home. I heard once someone say that waste are basically materials that have lost their way. You know, by giving them at least this, this passport, they'll have a way to, to find their way back. Then to have the ability to track and trace these materials, so to connect them with, for example, RFID tags or QR codes, so you can easily see where they are or maybe also even where they've been, which I think also for a lot of quality assurance and, and, and quality control purposes can be quite useful, but also to share with the end user the story of stuff so they can actually see where their stuff has been and what it has been through which I think, to be honest, more and more is becoming part of, of the unique selling proposition of a number of the organizations that we work with. Then to use the data in the passport as well to create embedded impact analyses. So you can see what the impact is of the material. So you also understand why perhaps you should conserve the use of them or conserve them in general, but also to understand what the impact savings can be if you reuse them in a high value way. And then lastly, sort of bridge what we would call, and this sounds maybe very technical, information asymmetries. And with that, I mean, make it very easy for companies to understand what the potential can be of these materials. What is their hidden ambition? What else could they be in a next life? And that sounds maybe a bit vague, but with that, I mean that we use artificial intelligence and machine learning to basically connect these material streams with high value next uses, be they in reuse or remanufacture, refurbishment or recycling. And I think those are the, the technical elements of it, which is important. But I think as you, know, as you may have noticed in this conversation, we've spent a lot of time actually talking about the people and about processes. And that's the other part of it, is to enable organizations to work with these tools and to embed them in the different processes they work with. And maybe also Anne can, can share a little bit more about how that then perhaps works in practice. So to give the example of, we talked about the collaboration that is taking place within Europe to more or less make the, the whole aviation sector more sustainable. So what we are actively working on today with uh, three airports in, in Europe, of which Schiphol is coordinating, is to actually also create a research passport, like Christian is explaining, while being, of course, very active on people and processes to begin with. But you see that defining a pilot location, because obviously you cannot take an entire airport into a passport just now, so we're making it again small. We're trying to see, can we like to start with like one dedicated area where we start to map, let's say, all the materials that would be able even to be reused. While we're doing it, we're seeing a lot of positive things, meaning there often is already quite some data available, especially in construction. There are already information systems like BIM that, that provide already quite some information. However, we also see there is still a gap with the type of information that we are looking at, right? Because obviously we want to know more about where is this coming from or what are the dimensions, but also really the material consists of talking about, for instance, recycled content in it. That can give us already a feeling of what are the materials that we're talking about. Also linking it to 
matching potential reuse opportunities. So what you're seeing here, we're spending quite some time to collect the data in order to really to build the passport. And once the passport is there, with Kristen explaining, there are technologies to, to make sure that this material or product can find the next location relatively easy, right, inside or outside the airport. But that really is the next step. And, and we're not even there yet, taking also into consideration this process. And I think it's just very interesting learnings that these airports, apart from the objectives that we're sharing in the specific program, but these airports already are heading in that direction. They have similar objectives. They are working with contractors that are also taking into consideration these objectives. So it feels like you're not the only one, even if you're a company, the only one that wants a change. No, it feels that you can really build on the momentum that is there and connect forces with your supply chain partners, because most of them have a objective about zero waste or maybe even circularity more specifically. But you see that the willingness to collaborate is there, the practical ways of doing so, for instance, by using the AMA platform, is still for many, many companies one step too far, even though there are great examples that uh, Christian can also talk about. Yeah, but I think then Anworks also comes in in identifying what are the gaps, like what, what are they needs to be able to use the platform. And, and for example, in the built environment, what we're now seeing, and, and that's one of the things that we're now working on in this Tulips project, is to identify what are, for example, common elements that can always be reused in a new building. So those are then the elements that, that we would then perhaps take out of a renovation project or out of a project with a little bit more care and perhaps maybe even store it somewhere at a location where it can be stored safely so that then a project developer or an architect or whatnot can see that through the platform and then implement that in a, in a new design. So the platform becomes sort of like a conduit for making things happen, but the process bits and, and creating ways to make that happen are, I would say, as important or maybe even more important. Sort of like the Ark of Noah strategy, like build it and they will come, doesn't necessarily fly for, for the circular economy transition. It's an amazing example of what you're describing there as well, making it real as you're describing. And I love that last bit you shared there, Christian, about the fact that you can potentially identify ahead of a renovation or a project the materials that you really want to reuse. And so it changes the process and that allows you to sort of increase the value or keep the value. That's that sort of specific example, as you were saying, Anna, that's like a one of the little bites, one of the little steps that can kind of fit into the ladder of this whole transition. And so we've sort of touched on the huge complexity and, and, and everything. And we've also got some brilliant examples of the work that you're doing and uh, to make it concrete. I'd love to keep going. I'd love to keep going and get into more and more depth and some more stories, but we can't. Unfortunately, we can't keep going forever. So what would be amazing is, I think for the listeners, if there's places they can go to find out more about the work, both about Excess Materials Exchange, but also about the other work that you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, they can go to our website, accessmaterialsexchange.com. They can email us at info at accessmaterialsexchange.com. They can connect with us on LinkedIn and, and happy to set up meetings to give a demo of the platform to share with them the work that we have done. And we work in many different domains and we're actually very excited about getting new and weird materials to work on because that doesn't only excite us, but also helps to make the whole platform more robust and make the ways that we work more robust. So we're very much looking for 
more sort of data and more bytes, as Anne says it, to chew on uh, that really helps us become better as a platform and as an organization. Perfectly said. Nothing uh, nothing to add on that. And, uh, and definitely happy to continue talking with you or with anyone interested in this topic. So feel free to reach out. Amazing. Thank you. I will definitely take you up on that and follow up with future conversations. Thank you both for joining us and spending some time talking about yourselves and your story, which is inspiring, and then the real concrete work that you're doing. We really appreciate your time. Thanks, Barry. Thanks. Thanks, Emily. Really appreciate it. Thank you both. I hope you find plenty more weird and wonderful materials to work with. (laughs) Thanks. I hope so, too. There's some interesting stuff that we sometimes come across. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of Happy Porch Radio. You can listen to past episodes, find transcripts, and all the show notes at happyporchradio.com. You can also get in touch with us there and let us know what you think or if you have any ideas or comments. Please rate the podcast, share and subscribe so that more people can find the show. Thanks for listening. My name is Barry O'Kane. I founded Happy Porch, who support this podcast. At Happy Porch, we do technology and software development for purpose-led businesses. And we're particularly excited about the role of digital as an enabler for the circular economy. If you're working on solutions to the big problems we face today, problems like climate change, biodiversity loss, and global inequality, then let's connect. Visit happyporch.com and get in touch. And I'm Emily Swaddle, podcaster, coach, facilitator, and storyteller. You can find me on my other podcast, The Carbon Removal Show, and you can find out more about that project and everything else I do at emilyswaddle.com, where you can also subscribe to my newsletter, All About Rest. If you're interested in anything I do, feel free to connect. You can email me on hello at emilyswaddle.com.